The scripture reading today is from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. You can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generation but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and, firm, and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joyce. Good morning, Lake Baldwin Church. Well, one of my favorite games when I was a young boy was the game of Clue. Now, I don't know if that's a Gen X thing or something else. Maybe you've never heard of Clue. Uh, if you haven't, it goes like this. It's a game of who done it, who done it, who did it, what weapon did they use, and in what location. And uh, the game board is basically the mansion where the murder takes place and it's various rooms, and throughout the game, what you're doing is you're going from room to room, and you're collecting clues. And when you get to the point where you think you've figured out who done it, with what weapon, and in what location, you go to the center, and you make your proclamation. You may say, I think it was Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the library. And then they open up the little envelope that has the three different uh, cards in it, and you get to see whether you're right or not. You get to see whether you've won the game. Well, the Old Testament is a little bit like the game of Clue. As you're going through the different books of the Bible in the Old Testament, like the historical books, the law, the prophets, the poetic and wisdom books, you are picking up clues about God's plan of redemption. Who is it going to be, and how is he going to accomplish redemption? And then when you come to the New Testament, that mystery is revealed. It's revealed to be Christ. It's just like opening up that envelope. Yep, you get to figure out who he is, how he does it. You even get to figure out the location, right? So as we unpack our passage today, we're going to see a little bit about God's great mystery, which is Christ. And before we get to the mystery of Christ, 
I want us to look at the suffering of Christ. Then we're going to look at the mystery, and then we are going to end with looking at the sufficiency of Christ. And so, first of all, let's jump in to look at the suffering of Christ in verse 24. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, I don't know about you, when I read a verse like that, my body kind of bristles a little bit, right? Uh, Because Paul is putting two words together that, for me at times, I don't think seem to belong together in the same sentence. And that, those two words are the word rejoice and suffering. Rejoice and suffering. You know, I spend a lot of time and energy and money trying to avoid suffering and pain. And I think in our culture, we do that as well. And it even extends to emotional or psychological suffering and pain. Let me give you an example. One area in my life where there is suffering and pain is over this idea of achievement or success. Because you see, to fail is to go to a place that is painful for me. And so I try to avoid failure by doubling down on work and by doing other things because that pain is too much for me to bear. But thank God that the gospel of Jesus Christ is giving me freedom. It's giving me life because the gospel says that my name is written in heaven and I'm accepted by God the Father. There could be no greater success than that. And anything on this earth would pale in comparison. Well, for you, it may not be achievement or success. It may be trusting other people. You can't trust other people because to trust other people is to invite pain. Or it may be that you have to always be in control because there was a time in your life when you were not in control and when you were not in control, you suffered immensely. So the point here is we don't often rejoice when we suffer. We actually try to avoid suffering Well, what is Paul saying here in these verses? I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul is rejoicing not in suffering for suffering's sake, but for some other reason. He's he's rejoicing for your sake, he says, and he's talking about the Colossians. Because you see, we don't or should not rejoice in the fact that we've lost a loved one or that We have cancer or a friend has cancer. Those are bad things. Those are evil things. And so we look at that with eyes of reality and and not in denial and say that's not a good thing. But the Bible always connects our suffering with a greater purpose. And it's in that purpose that we can rejoice. Here in this passage, we're getting one reason. Paul's sufferings for the Colossians are something worthy of of rejoicing, and we know in other places in Scripture that our suffering is connected to our growth in the Lord. And I do appreciate that Mark read that Scripture from uh, Romans chapter 5, how God is using trials in our life to draw us closer to Him. And so there's a sweetness in your relationship with Jesus that can only be obtained through the valley 
of suffering. So what sufferings is Paul referring to? You may be very familiar with this. I want to read it for you in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is what the apostle Paul is talking about. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, why on earth would anybody want to go through all of that suffering, and how could he have the perspective of rejoicing in this suffering? Well, it's because of that surpassing worth of bringing Jesus to the Colossians and having that privilege to bring Jesus all across the Mediterranean world. Paul goes on to say in this passage, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now Paul is not saying here that somehow Jesus, his suffering was not enough. And that Paul has to do his part to help atone for his sins. That's, what not, that's not what Paul is saying because it would go against Paul's teaching in other places. But especially in the book of Colossians where Paul is teaching that Christ is the supreme one. Christ is the sufficient one. What he's talking about here is that it has been ordained for the church of God to suffer. And Paul was participating in his share of that suffering. Well, this concept might be alarming to you this morning to hear that if you are a believer this morning, if you're part of the church, you are going to suffer. But I want you to consider this, that Christianity has the only lens to make sense of our suffering, and that is because there's no other religion on planet Earth where we have a God who himself has entered into our suffering. No other human being on earth has experienced what Jesus experienced on the cross. Right? He left the comfort of heaven. He left the privilege, the comfort, the position of heaven, the security of heaven. He left the security of the loving relationship he had for all of eternity with the Father, and he gave it up. And he suffered on the cross for us. And if God himself has suffered, can we expect to escape suffering ourselves? Well, it's because of our union with Christ that Christ himself, when we suffer, he actually treats it as our own. We see this in Acts chapter 9 when we hear about the Apostle Paul and how he's converted. This is what Jesus says when he confronts the Apostle Paul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? That's not what he says. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was persecuting the church, killing people, and Jesus takes it as its persecution of himself. 
So when we suffer, Jesus suffers along with us. There is no other religion on the planet like this. There is no other God like Jesus. I do want to say, though, that suffering can be bewildering and confusing. And why is that? Well, when you're going through suffering, you ask the question, why God? Why is this happening to me? And one of the things I think about from a biblical standpoint when I'm confronted with that question in my life or in the life of others is I think about the crucifixion of our Lord and I think about the women who were perhaps gathered around the cross watching their Lord be crucified. They probably had that same question, why God? Why Why? this innocent, good man is being tortured on a cross. Well, from our perspective, we can now look back in time and see the reason God was doing that. Well, of course, God was accomplishing the greatest act in all of human history, the greatest good. But at that moment of pain and suffering, those women had no idea What in the world was God doing? Suffering can be bewildering and confusing, but we can rejoice. We can trust in God because the scriptures show us that suffering is not wasted. Suffering has a purpose. Suffering has a meaning. God is in control. Any suffering that is coming into your life is coming through his sovereign and loving hands. And we know that he treats the suffering personally, and he's going through it with you as well. R.C. Sproul tells of this story in one of his books of his father's own suffering and the death of his father, and he says, my father's suffering, my father's death was instrumental. God used that to bring me to the Lord. And so it's amazing, he got a glimpse to see how God was using suffering. We don't always get that glimpse, but we can trust God. We can rejoice because our suffering is not wasted. Our suffering has meaning. Well, that's the suffering of Christ. I want to look secondly at the mystery of Christ in verses 26 and 27, and then verse 2 in chapter 2. It says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this majesty, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then in in chapter two, verse two, it says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And so what is God's great mystery? God's great mystery is Jesus himself. And why does the Apostle Paul call it a mystery? Well, it's because prior to that time, they didn't know who the Messiah would be. They weren't quite sure what the work of the Messiah would be. It's just like that game of Clue. The Jews had clues along the way that there would be one who would be the the prophet, priest, and king, but they didn't know. They would receive clues from God's promises Clues from the prophecies, the sacrifices, the sacraments of Passover, 
and circumcision. They would have all of these clues. And it starts with the very first clue after the fall. We see this in Genesis chapter 3 where we get the first promise of the gospel. I will put enmity, he's speaking about Satan, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So who is the one who's gonna bruise, who's gonna, sorry, give a fatal blow to the head of the serpent? Well, it's none other than Jesus. And if we fast forward in redemptive history in the Bible and we go to Abraham and we say, who is that offspring who will be a blessing to all the nations on planet Earth? Well, that person is, is Jesus. And then we fast forward to Moses and when God says to Moses, from among your brothers will arise a prophet like you, who is that prophet? It is Jesus. And then we fast forward to David, and we go to David where God promises to David that one will sit on your throne and your kingdom will last forever. Who is that king? It is Jesus. Augustine says it this way, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. I like to think of redemptive history this way. I like to think of it as a widening as history is going along, what's going on? God is slowly revealing himself to his people. We're getting to know more and more who this God is. We're also getting to see more and more of his plan of redemption. How is he going to save humanity? But at the same time, that there's this, this widening is going on. There is a narrowing going on as history is progressing and that narrowing is narrowing down on who this person is and what work he will do, right? In the beginning, you heard that it's, it's an offspring of Eve, right? That's a pretty wide funnel, offspring of Eve. Then we learn that, that it's going to be an offspring of Abraham, right? He's coming out of, he's a Chaldean, coming out of, of Babylon. And then we learn that it's going to be someone from the nation of Israel, and then time goes on and we learn that it's going to be from the tribe of Judah. And then we learn that it's going to be someone from the family of David. So you see there's a narrowing down of who is this person and what work is he going to do. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to be the sacrificial lamb. He's going to be the suffering Servant. More and more detail is unfolding and narrowing down who this person and what the work they will do. Here's the point. Jesus was the mystery hidden for ages and generations to come, but is now revealed to us. Jesus is the point of all of human history. He's the point of the entire Bible. And so just a little aside here about that. When you read the Bible, especially when you read the Old Testament. You need to read the Old Testament with New Testament eyes. Because this is what the New Testament writers actually model for us. And what I'm saying here is that the New Testament is interpreting the old. It's like you've opened the envelope and you now know that it's Jesus. And so you can look back and see all of the clues that God was building up over time. The New Testament interprets the old. The Old Testament provides a background for us to read the New Testament. 
And don't get this in reverse, because if you get this in reverse, you may end up in legalism. You may end up in a bad place. You may end up uh, in works righteousness. Furthermore, God's great mystery in Jesus is further unveiled in the fact that the Gentiles are now included among the people of God. And again, this was something that was barely visible in the Old Testament. And if you remember when we studied Joshua, we saw Rahab the Canaanite be brought into the family of God through faith. And you may know that Ruth the Moabite was brought into the family of God by faith. And Naaman the Syrian brought into the family of God by faith. Those who were once outsiders are now brought in. They are insiders. And now, since the day of Pentecost, since the Holy Spirit was poured out, we now see this, this tree of God blossoming and becoming into full bloom, where the gospel is spreading all across planet Earth. And in Christ Jesus, he's uniting all sorts of people. Right? He's uniting Ukrainians and Russians. He's bringing Ethiopians in, Sudanese in, North Koreans, Chinese. He's bringing all peoples across the planet. All tribes, all nations, all tongues are in the family of God. <clears throat> and that was a mystery. Jesus is tearing down the walls between all peoples of the earth. Well, the last aspect of the mystery I want uh, to bring to you this morning and unpack is our union with Christ, our union with Christ. And what do I mean by that? In this passage, you see Paul referring to Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ in you, saints or Colossians. And we also see that we are in Christ or that the Colossians are also in Christ. And so a simple definition for union with Christ is that Christ is in you and you are in him. Paul would say this in Ephesians to give an illustration, he's talking about marriage in chapter five. Listen to what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Note how he's talking about that, that this union with Christ is a mystery. This union with Christ did not exist in the Old Testament. And what he's saying is, just like in marriage, where you have two people coming together and becoming one, so it is with Christ and the church. We are so joined to Christ that we are one. Jesus is in us. We are in him. Now, I think if you were an Old Testament believer coming into the church and found out that the spirit of the living God is living inside of you and that somehow you are in him, it would blow your mind apart. So many ramifications to this union with Christ. Let me just give you a couple of them to talk about this morning. We just celebrated Easter, right? Because Christ is risen from the dead, guess what? We're in union with Christ. We are risen from the dead as well. Because he died and was buried, we also have died and have been buried, and our life is hidden with God and Christ. And then to make it even more personal for me, when I think of union with Christ, I think of the fact 
that the Spirit of God is living inside of me and he can give me peace. He can give me joy. He can give me rest. He is with me when I face trials and difficulties. He's the one that's giving me strength and power through those valleys. And when I am in Christ, the Heavenly Father looks upon me and he is smiling. He is smiling and he's delighting, not in the fact that I'm successful or have achieved something or have earned that smile. He's smiling because he sees his son, Jesus. And so this is a wonderful mystery, this union with Christ that is revealed to us. And it's part of this great mystery that's unpacked when we look at the mystery of Christ. Lastly, I want to look at the sufficiency of Christ. And to unpack this idea, I want us to first see what is Paul's mission as a, in his ministry. And you can see this in verses 25 and 28, where it says his mission was to make the word of God fully known. And then in verse 28, it says him, meaning Jesus, we proclaim. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul would say it this way, we preach Christ cru crucified. These are all basically saying the same thing. It's saying that Jesus is the central message, the central part of the ministry that Paul was involved in. And that's why at Lake Baldwin Church, when you come Sunday after Sunday, you're going to hear a message about Christ. Because Christ is not the milk of the word. Christ is the solid food of the word that we need to feed on day after day and week after week. I love how Charles Spurgeon says it. He says this, a sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Pretty strong words, isn't it, right? You guys are going to hold us accountable to that. Tell us to go home. Here it is. The danger of, of teaching and preaching and leaving out Christ. It's like doing a book report on the Lord of the Rings and writing all about Rosie Cotton. And you're asking, like, who is Rosie Cotton? That's exactly the point. And if Sarah Bergeson isn't here, she probably knows who Rosie Cotton is, right? There's a few of you who know who Rosie Cotton is, but she's a minor character. It's to major on the minors and to miss the point of the Bible. Here's the second danger that you run into if we preach and we teach and we don't bring Christ. It's what sociologist Christian Smith calls moralistic, therapeutic, Deism. What is that? That's a religion. That's what our religion would degenerate to. It's a religion that has a God who is your therapist, and he's here to help solve your problems. He's here to make you a better person. He's here to make you a nice, good person. Church, we don't need a therapist. We were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We don't need a therapist. We need a savior. We need a savior who can rip out this hard heart and give us a brand new heart that wants to love and delight in God. 
We need a savior who will keep the rules for us because no amount of rule keeping on our part is going to make us good and nice people. We need Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. And the reason why Christ is preached and why Christ is essential for Paul is because Christ is sufficient. And I want to look at why. Why? Why this ministry of preaching Christ? And we see in verse 28, it says this, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And that word mature, teleos, it has this idea of perfection, completeness, making it to the finish line. And so what does it look like to be complete in Christ? And this is what Paul is doing as he unpacks those verses in chapter 2. It's knowing the riches of the glory of the mystery in Christ with assurance and understanding. It's having your heart encouraged and being knit together in love. It's not being deceived by false teaching. It's being of good order and having a firm faith in Christ. And so how do we obtain this completeness? We obtain it through the sufficiency of Christ. Resting and receiving all that Christ has done for us. Because we are already complete in Christ this morning. You see, we have Christ working in us and we are becoming actually what we already are. Christ is sufficient for us. One of the things our family likes to do every so often, uh, every few years, is we go up to a place called Maggie Valley, North Carolina. And we love to do it because there's hiking and there's mountains. Uh, we get to disconnect from the world. And I'll tell you this, it gives us a chance to check out some different Airbnbs. And there's a big difference between an Airbnb that's rated closer to a four-star versus something that's almost a five-star. What I'm saying there is those five-star Airbnbs, when you get to them, they have provided every single thing that you could possibly need. They have even provided things that you don't need but you may have desired. They have even provided things that you haven't even thought of, but they've anticipated it for you. Right? These are the places that have the high th thread count sheets, and they don't have those scratchy towels like you find at the cheap motels. You, those nice, plush, luxurious towels. The very, very best. That's what I'm talking about when I say our sufficiency in Christ. In Jesus, we have everything we need we have our deepest longings, our deepest desires and wants in Christ. And in Christ, we have things that we haven't even anticipated for ourselves, things that we're going to need or things that we are going to want. Everything that we need for life and for godliness is found in Christ Jesus. And because we are in union with him, we don't have to look anywhere else. We have it all in Jesus. And so I hope this morning that you can see the surpassing worth, the amazing beauty of Jesus, whose life ended on a cruel cross 
with nothing. Why? So that you can have everything. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father and mighty God, what riches and glory we have in your Son that we can barely understand, but it is all there in your Son, Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that by faith we are in union with him. We are one with him. And somehow you delight to put the spirit of Jesus within us. And somehow you delight that we are found hidden in your son. Lord, we praise you. We worship you this morning because you are a great God. You are a loving God. You have taken care of all the needs and wants of your people. And we give you praise and thanksgiving this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.